Hello and welcome to the Science and Belief in Society podcast, brought to you by the International Research Network for the Study of Science and Belief in Society. As has been regularly discussed in this podcast series, science and religion are widely perceived to be in perennial and insoluble conflict. In previous podcasts, we've traced and debunked the historical roots of this conflict and shown that public attitudes and perceptions are often more complex than simple conflict framings would anticipate. However, and despite this, the perception of intractable science-religion conflict persists. Today's guest, Dr Tom Eckner, Senior Lecturer in Religion and Science at the University of Queensland, Australia, researches one of the key drivers of this persistent perception, mass media. In this final episode of the series, Tom will talk us through the persuasive and rhetorical tactics used by both pro- and anti-evolutionist media and explain what science communicators could learn from their anti-evolutionary counterparts. As always, I'm Dr. Will Mason-Wilkes, and I'm delighted to be joined by my co-hosts, Dr. James Riley and Dr. Rachel Shillito. How are you both today, guys? All right, all right. Yeah, yeah, it's good. I mean, it's quite early here. We've got, um, you know, quite a gap in time zones between us and our guests today, haven't we? We do. The full international breadth of our network is on display today, so it's very exciting. And you're back today with us, Rachel. Um, so that's great. Great I to have am. you back. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for covering me, the other podcast guys. Um, no. My mum broke her foot, so I had to dive out of um, James's podcast recording, which I was sorry to do. But, um, you know, I had the joy of going around Blackpool Hospital with my mum in a wheelchair, getting a cast on her foot. So. I hope she's on the mend. She is, and she's listening the to the podcast. So you know, what other recovery um, could could one wish for? That you know, alternative she's... medicine we're yeah. giving out here. You know. <laughs> she's she's got it sorted. Um, so yeah, glad to be back. Oh. And uh, today we're joined by Dr. Tom Eckner. Uh, hi, Tom. Hey, how you doing? Very well. So uh, a question that we ask all our guests is how are you, where are you, and what do you do? Well, I'm doing well, thanks for asking. Um, I'm actually in Australia. Um, I'm at the University of Queensland in Brisbane, in um, the state of Queensland, and I work at the University of Queensland as a senior lecturer in religion and science, and I'm in the Faculty of Humanities and Social Science. Great. Um... So how then did you kind of become interested um, in the study of science and religion or uh, science and belief in society then? What was your kind of academic journey into this, into this field? Oh, I really, you know, initially became interested in science and religion and society back when I was an undergraduate student um, at the University of Alberta in Canada. And I was doing a major in biology and studying evolutionary biology, physiology, and developmental biology. And um, it was partway through that degree that I added a minor in religious studies. So I really became interested in both the sciences and religion as I saw them as two key levers in human history. And they both really fascinated me, um, and they still do today. But it was during that time um, at the U of A, when I was doing this major in biology and this minor in religious studies, that um, everyone else told me when they found out that these were my major and minor courses of study that 
you can't do that. So uh, everywhere that I went when I was, when people said, oh, what are you studying? I said, oh, I'm doing bio, uh, major in biology and minor in religious studies. People said, well, look, you can't do those two things together. They don't get on. Uh, and actually through university, I, I worked, I was a sandwich artist <laughs> and I worked at a sub shop. Uh, well, and, mm. we, and we would be open, we would be open while the bars cleared out and the bars closed on White Ave in Edmonton. And people would come in and I would serve them uh, after drinks meals. And people would ask, oh, what are you studying? And I would say science, religion. And people would always say, you can't do that. These don't, things don't get along. And it was uh, people from all different backgrounds were telling me. This. So religious people were telling me this. So the religious people were saying, you can't study, let's say evolutionary biology as I was doing and study religious studies. And non-religious people were saying the same thing. And I think I was relatively like, naive. I just, I hadn't thought that they could, that they, that they didn't get along. I, I didn't know enough about the two subjects. So it kind of came as a surprise to me. And in that process, I took a course um, from a professor named uh, Dennis Lamoureux, who was at the University of Alberta. And he, uh, he was teaching science and religion courses there. And he, uh, actually his course, his undergraduate course was one of the most well attended electives on offer at the university. So, you know, in the midst of that entire process, I took courses with Dennis Lamoureux and, and he really um, got me interested in, you know, why people think that this, that, that science and religion are in conflict, why it's such an important concern to be studying. And that really kind of kicked off also my academic career later on. Um, so Tom, you've recently published a book, congratulations. Um, it's called Media and Science Religion Conflict, Mass Persuasion in the Evolution Wars. Um, and I guess kind of, you know, uh, linking back to what you just said about your, your sort of journey into academia, science, religion. I wondered if you could sort of tell our listeners um, about the evolution wars and, and what are the evolution wars? Well, I, I define the evolution wars as uh, the ongoing debates associated with modern science and specifically the theory of evolution um, and religious beliefs. Um, and the evolution wars really revolve around uh, the growth of religiously motivated anti-evolutionism in the 20th century. Uh, and this included the rise of young earth creationism as we know today uh, during the 1960s onward. And then the development of the intelligent design theory movement in the 90s. And as, as those groups started to influence societies and their ideas became sort of uh, more widely accepted, both in the United States and around the world, um, that incited a counter-creationist backlash from pro-evolutionists um, who fought attempts um, to get anti-evolutionism, for instance, taught in schools in the United States and elsewhere. And this kind of led to a cycle where um, anti-evolutionists and pro-evolutionists were sort of debating each other and going at each other. And, and all of that, the whole spectrum of legal debates and educational debates and religious, the theological, philosophical debates around science uh, and anti-evolutionism is what I include in the evolution wars. So, so who are some of the kind of, um, kind of key players in that debate then, Tom? So who are the sort of, who are the people kind of on each side who are, who, who's, who's pushing this from either direction, I guess? Yeah, that, that's the key question. So the, 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 you know, the key original players um, were um, the Institute for Creation Research. And they, uh, the Institute for Creation Research was founded in 
the 1970s by someone named Henry M. Morris. And Henry M. Morris was a co-author on a book called The Genesis Flood. And this was a book that um, basically tried to interpret um, or tried to apply scientific, to say that um, everything that we see in geology and in the sciences backs up a literal interpretation of the six days of creation narrative that we found in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And Henry M. Morris um, wrote this book. It, it was published in 1961. And at that time, uh, anti-evolutionism was really on the decline and, uh, in, in the United States. But what happened was this book was really picked up uh, in evangelical Christian circles. And, and we sort of had this renaissance of anti-evolutionism that occurred in the 1960s onward. And uh, from there, um, he, he founded the Institute for Creation Research, which became one of the first uh, uh, um, professional anti-evolutionist creationist organizations in the US in the latter half of the 20th century. And other big players then uh, include Answers in Genesis. So Answers in Genesis is now the largest uh, young earth creationist organization in the world. It was founded by a guy named Ken Ham, who is from uh, the state of Queensland, where I am. In fact, he has a teaching certificate from the University of Queensland, which I am told is one of the most prestigious universities in Australia. And um, Ken Ham uh, ended up going to the US, worked with Henry Ann Morris, and then I believe it was in 1994, he got basically a blessing from Morris to start Answers in Genesis in the United States. And Answers in Genesis was an offshoot of an Australian uh, uh, anti-evolutionist organization called the Creation Science Foundation. So that Australian offshoot actually became the largest anti-evolutionist organization on earth, which tells you a little bit about the Australian's role in the fostering of evolution, uh, anti-evolutionism worldwide. So it's anti-evolution, creationism really seen as an American phenomenon, but the Australians have played a significant role in that. And then um, the intelligent design movement really started up in the 1990s. And the big organization there is the Center for Science and Culture. And that's um, under the Discovery Institute. And they uh, push, or they, they've really, they're back at an intelligent design view of uh, a form of anti-evolutionism. And then from the pro-evolutionist side, you know, the, some of the big players include the Richard Dawkins Foundation for Reason and Science, which is a, uh, a, a real uh, an atheist, um, um, pro-evolutionist perspective. And then we have the National Center for Science Education in the United States. And then another pro-evolutionist organization that I look at in the evolution wars is the BioLogos Foundation, which is a Christian pro-evolutionist group. Thanks, Tom. Um, so, I mean, when we think about the evolution wars, um, we think about kind of the arguments that are being made, the positions being put forward, I suppose, um, almost like the go-to perspective you've had when looking at that would be like, right, well, who's who's telling the truth here? Kind of what knowledge are they forwarding? Who's right? Um, but in the book, you, um, you actually look at the rhetorical and the persuasive content of some of this kind of popular and media messaging from the pro and the anti-evolutionist um, organizations. So I'm just thinking, what kinds of tactics do these different sides use in the debate um, and what seems to be the most effective? So in terms of um, the types of tactics that are used in anti-evolutionist 
mass media, one of the primary um, rhetorical devices or persuasive cues would be source cues. And that's referring to the expertise of the person communicating the argument or uh, referring to the significant amounts of science that are said to back up a, a particular position. So source cues is really based on messenger credibility. It's based on building the credibility of the, of the individual or group that's trying to relay a message. And that's a central uh, persuasive cue in anti-evolutionism. Uh, media. It's really saying, look, we are the most scientific. In fact, we're more scientific than anyone else. We're really doing cutting edge science. The data really backs us up. Um, in terms of answers in Genesis, there's also significantly more source credibility based, but we are the most uh, devoted to the scriptures, right? And so that's a different kind of source credit. It's appealing to religious credibility, right? So we're actually devoted to Christian values and defending the Bible against the onslaught of um, um, secular scientists. And that, that's probably one of the biggest that we find in, in anti-evolution materials. But we also see just simply rhetorical questions, the use of rhetorical questions to, to really put into doubt the credibility of evolutionary scientists and of the science that's backing up evolution. Um, we also see things like the contrast principle and negativity effect, which is where you contrast, for instance, the, 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 the truth and the veracity of anti-evolutionism to the uh, the the chickenry and the um, the lying nature of evolutionists, the deceptive nature of evolutionists. Um, but there's also things like the use of statistics and technical jargon in anti-evolution materials and, and social consensus appealing to um, the fact that apparently there are millions of anti-evolutionists around the world today that are opposed that are opposed to the theory of evolution. All the way to message repetition and the scarcity principle, which includes appeals to um, um, the idea that something is being censored, that, that um, anti-evolutionist scientific data is being censored by a, ca a cabal of, of pro-evolutionist scientists who are trying to hide the truth about the nature of um, 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 evolutionary theory as being a flawed idea and a flawed science. I, I mean, that's really interesting because some of those kind of... Um kind of tactics you, you kind of talk about that seem almost kind of contradictory like almost kind of like they're, they're sort of arguing in almost kind of orthogonal direct like direction for you I mean, you know to sort of on the one hand kind of uh, this source credibility thing uh, you know where you're kind of claiming actually we're the real we're the ones really doing science on the other hand a bit but then to kind of be like well there's all these people who believe this stuff anyway you know kind of thing without the kind of you know that is that kind of do you think that kind of adds to the kind of strength of the message, the fact that they're these kind of quite diverse or, or kind of contradictory kind of argumentative tactics, or is that just, you know, a kind of scattergun to try and convince as many different people as possible with different, you know, ways of arguing or? So, so when I first approached studying anti-evolution mass media, one of the things that became clear is that one of the primary areas of research had been simply deconstructing anti-evolutionist arguments. So saying, look, they're, 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 they're contradictory. They don't make sense scientifically. They don't even make sense theologically or philosophically. And in a sense, part of my research has been saying that's, that's, it's important to do that, right? We're always supposed to logically deconstruct um, counter science views and science skeptical views. But at the same time, a lot of my work by focusing on the persuasions, persuasive strategies and the persuasive cues is saying, well, look, that's partly missing the point. And the reason that's partly missing the point is that things can be per quite persuasive even if they are scientifically 
problematic, right? So even if they're scientifically specious, a lot of these ideas can be quite persuasive to certain audiences. And so, um, yes, there's a lot of, there are a lot of contradictions within, um, let's see, the anti-evolutionist mass media. But that's almost missing the point because they're still quite persuasive. The fact that they have, they have a rhetorical edge that you often don't see in pro-science um, communications. And, and I think that that's something to be looked at. They appeal to um, values and they appeal to morals and they appeal to um, um, scientific credibility in ways that often pro-science, pro-evolutionist media doesn't. I think that actually makes them effective despite their contradictions. That's really interesting, Tom. Um, I was just thinking then, so I suppose within the field of science communication, we have a lot of talk about the information deficit model. And, um, you know, if you want to, or, or people's attitudes towards science aren't necessarily just based on knowledge of, therefore, you know, if you want someone to be positive about science or kind of, um, you know, be pro-science in some sort of way, the idea is not just to give them loads of information about it because it's not really information that's doing the work there. So I'm just thinking when you were analyzing the pro-evolutionist messages, did you find them to be kind of mostly um, informational, knowledge heavy, or were there still some of these persuasive um, and rhetorical tactics in there? So when I looked at um, the pro-evolutionist, again, I was looking at the Richard Dawkins Foundation for Recent Science, Mass Media, I was looking at the National Center for Science Education and BioLogos Foundation, um, media, online media, and I was comparing their persuasion tactics with the uh, anti-evolutionist tactics, and I, I still found persuasion tactics in BioLogos and Richard Dawkins Foundation and, and National Center for Science Education, but in all three, you find fewer persuasion tactics used, so persuasive use, and they're also not used with the same sort of nuance that you find in the anti-evolutionist materials. Now, specifically with the National Center, uh, National Center for Science Education and Biologos Foundation, there we see much more um, factual, fact-based presentations of data. Um, I would say quite, um, let's say even keel presentations of data. With the Richard Dawkins Foundation for Reason and Science, you only see two, I only, I only found two major persuasive cues, that's asking questions and contrast with negativity. But what, we, what I found with um, the new atheist mass media is that it actually resembled anti-evolutionist mass media in one important respect. And that's that even though we see persuasive cues throughout all of the evolution wars mass media, anti-evolution mass media and new atheist media is different in the sense that they appeal readily to values and uh, culturally cognitive cues. So moral values, political values, um, that you don't find in the more neutral natural, National Center for, uh, for Science Education and BioLogos Media. So what we see is on the really on the end of the spectrum. So on one end of the spectrum, we have the anti-evolutionists. On the other end of the spectrum, we have new atheists, pro-evolutionists. They're appealing to values at the same time that they're using persuasive cues. So when you ask about which of these cues is, is which of these cues might be more persuasive than others, I don't measure that. I'm just trying to de demonstrate that these cues exist. We see far more cues in anti-evolutionist media, but we see the real distinctive is that anti-evolutionists and new atheists are, are appealing to values in ways that the other groups aren't. So there, I would say that those that, that appeal to values with 
the use of persuasive cues is going to be much more effective that, um, at persuading audiences than sort of the, just the demonstration of facts, which we see much more readily in National Center for Science Education and BioLogos Foundation appeals. And so, you know, with, with anti-evolutionist materials, we might see a reference to source credibility. So they look, we're the most scientific and we really believe, you know, in the true facts of the Bible and the Christian faith. And we value, we also believe in American values, this comes up later. We, we're the only ones that are, we're trying to defend American values and what America was founded upon. With new atheist media, um, uh, they're also appealing to, to values, the values uh, uh, um, of, you know, uh, of, of what they perceive to be scientific, um, scientific truth. And that, that, look, they're just trying to appeal to the, the, you know, the, the validity of science over the superstition of religion. And we're trying to, we're trying to appeal to science over the violence of religion. And if you really want to safeguard society, you have to get rid of religion because it's actually, it actually diminishes human value because it makes people violent. And, and so there's these references to values and morals that you find in those two extremes, which I think actually make the messages much more appealing to certain audiences. I so you know, I suppose with that, I mean, parking the idea for a side that kind of science is inherently political. Um, so just parking yeah. that, and then thinking the new atheists and um, the um, the anti-evolutionists are kind of seem on two ends of a spectrum there. Um, and in the middle, you have the National Science Foundation. Um, so on the two ends of the spectrum, it almost seems that they're using more persuasive tactics. Is it because they're more overtly kind of a political project on both sides of that spectrum? The new atheists trying to change society to be more anti-religious and um, the, um, the anti-evolutionists in a way trying to change society to be more uh, pro-religious. Does it have something yeah. to do with the, 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 the kind of the political motivations behind those messages, why they use tactics that are kind of more overtly, um, almost similar to political discourse in a way? Yeah, so well, the way I, I would sort of describe it is that they're more um, focused on defending certain values and yeah. certain cultural cultural ideals. And at the same time, both those extremes are really focused on actually demonstrating conflict between science and religion. Mm -hmm. That's the interesting thing. So, the, so in terms of the anti-evolutionists, they say, look, we're, the, we're actually the most scientific. We're, we're, we're really based on true science, but there is no way that you can be a you know, you can truly accept Christian scripture and this science. So we can't accept biological evolution or geology that says that the, that the, uh, the earth is quite ancient or astronomy uh, and astrophysics and that says that, you know, the universe is ancient. So even though they say that they're, they're completely based upon scientific premises, in reality, they are still putting forward a science and religion conflict. With the new atheists, of course, religion is is completely antecedent to, or, or completely at odds with scientific ways of thinking. So the, the two extremes are, are actually the ones that are pushing some sort of conflict. And that's what's it. So if you have to, if you have to push conflict, um, I think that that's kind of their motivation. So if you're pushing some sort of conflict, you have to have this kind of extreme or more extreme persuasion based on values and morals and, and cultural discourses around that. So, so it's, I don't see it necessarily as, as so much as, it is political, but I see it more as kind of conflict-based values communication. 
yeah and 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 the, and the more those two camps polarize the debates the 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 easier it is like to sort of like create that conflict and to almost like uh, strengthen their their own stake their their own their own argument um so they uh, later in your book um in the media uh, science religion conflict book you you compare these persuasion tactics of the anti anti-evolutionists with um, other anti-science movements such as anti-vaccination and you discuss how these tactics can be countered and I was wondering in the case of anti-vaccination that you know there seems to be a fairly clear uh if you like well-established public health reason to counter those claims right um would you say there's the same case for countering anti-evolutionist views in the media Yes, it's an interesting, it's a very good question, actually. Um, back in 2016, I was interviewed for the Westpac Research Fellowship, which I'm currently on. And one of the panel members was a leader uh, of the CSIRO, which is the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organization, which is Australia's national science agency. And he asked me something similar. He said, look, I can understand why we would you know, fo really focus on the persuasion tactics of anti-vaccinationists or perhaps uh, climate change denial um, proponents because these have immediate, relatively immediate and significant outcomes. Why would, should we care about the anti-evolutionist movement? And in answer to that question, you know, I said that really people's projection of science can influence, um, can have other impacts on society. So. Uh, we live in, you know, democratic societies where we elect officials um, and those officials can um, influence what's taught in schools, um, what funding governments assign to research, what they do or do not allocate to what kinds of research. And so in terms of uh, evolution, primarily in the United States, the, in the United States is a bit of a different story because um, school curriculum is democratically chosen in certain regions. So there are, there are boards that actually choose local textbooks and what is taught. And so that, if you have people, if people, a large proportion of your population does not believe in evolution or is opposed to evolutionary theory, which is one of the foundational, it's the foundational notion of modern biology. And you get enough people on that committee that say, look, we're not gonna teach this. Then entire generations of children will not understand a foundational scientific premise. We can elect people into government that will no longer fund research into a fundamental component of modern biology and science. So these can actually have significant effects on scientific learning and scientific funding and how people understand the world around them. So they might not have, in certain terms of looking at anti-evolutionist mass media, it might not have seem to have the immediate effects of looking at anti-vaccination media, for instance, or counter-vaccination media, but the effects are, can still be quite significant in terms of overall science funding, education in countries, um, and, and where biology is really, you know, it's the foundational theory for understanding, you know, life on earth and life around us. And it has affects, it affects so many other disciplines that, um, having generations brought up with in doubt of it could, can be, I think, significantly problematic for the future of, of science education in, all around the world. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's, that's, that's really interesting, Tom. I'm just thinking about um, kind of what you said, uh, sort of right at the stop at your kind of 
you know late night sandwich shop conversations um and if there's some kind of you know you, you can think about the relationship between these kinds of media presentations and you know those kinds of framings that people bring into their you know you know <laughs> when, when they've had a bit to you know have had a bit to drink of an evening and these things come out these kinds of you know repertoires that are there there on hand and i wonder if you know these those kinds of media framings and these kind of you know evolutionary evolutionarily speak evolution wars framings um kind of feed into those kind of wider public discourses and wider public understandings and that's why it's potentially interesting to kind of um think about these you know how, how these things relate to each other um but yeah i mean i guess that kind of ramble kind of leads onto the kind of question that you know how how do we think investigating or how do you think investigating the kind of mass media communication tactics around science and religion um can kind of help us to better understand the relationship between science and belief in society? Well, I think it really gets back to that um, the discussion about the knowledge deficit model, the deficit model of science communication. And, and you know, again, when we look at sort of evolution wars research, it's, it, when I first started, it was, again, it, were, it was really focused on sort of pole polemical deconstructions of anti-evolutionist arguments, as well as sort of historical investigations of the complex. How did we get to where we are today? Um, there, ex there are also a lot of examinations for uh, related to trying to find possible avenues for sort of religion and evolution consonant. You know, how can we kind of bring the two together? And then there were also sort of quite a few uh, uh, studies on population analytics, so surveys and statistics designed to gauge the acceptance of evolution. Uh, and various forms of Darwin skepticism. But in terms of look, when we look at sort of mass media communication tactics, it sort of shifts, I think, the argument a little bit away from, for instance, polemical deconstructions. And saying again, you know, part of the, you know, part of the reason, it, it's kind of getting to the heart of why some of these um, counter science views um, continue, despite so many academics deconstructing anti-evolutionism, th theological arguments, philosophical arguments, scientific arguments, despite so many academics saying, look, historically, there hasn't been that much of a problem with some of these issues until let's say the mid 20th century in the US and other places, um, despite academics saying, look, there's a lot of ways that religion and science can get along. When we look at mass media and mass persuasion, it kind of gets to the heart of how these things can still be sticky, despite you know, all of these academic claims and the, the findings and it kind of gets also the heart of why science communications often don't work and it's because we're so focused on data and fact claims when people really accept often accept scientific ideas or reject scientific ideas um, on other grounds they do so based on their cultural cognition on, on on whether they're in groups that also accept or reject those ideas whether those ideas you know, affirm their own personal values and that sort of idea. And so in terms of, you know, looking at mass communications, again, it, it sort of shifts, I think, um, to the idea that sometimes we're missing the point. Sometimes things can actually be scientifically problematic. They could even be religiously problematic, but they're still persuasive because they, 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 they're still accepted um, for other reasons. And, and I think looking at persuasion kind of, um, it, it changes the conversation a little bit by, by acknowledging that we don't make decisions based on fact claims. 
we often make decisions based on other heuristics and cues um, and what, all, what we already accept to be true. Thanks, Tom. So um, I think you hinted at this earlier, um, but um, what are you working on at the moment and um, in terms of research projects? Uh, so at present, you know, I, I really started obviously with looking at um, anti-evolutionism and anti-evolutionist persuasion tactics. And as I was doing that, I, I actually saw simple, I, what I thought were similarities between uh, anti-evolutionist persuasion tactics and other counter-science claims. So looking at uh, climate change denial mass media and specifically anti-vaccination claims. And so I've shifted into looking at the persuasion strategies of anti-vaccination, uh, the anti-vaccination movement, specifically here in Australia, but also um, similar claims. And, um, and looking at ways that, uh, what are the ways that anti-vaccination um, mass media is using persuasion techniques to, when speaking to audiences and what are ways that uh, to improve vaccination communications in light of what we're seeing from uh, anti-vaccination mass media. It, what, what are some of those like persuasion tactics in, in, in that area then, Tom? Well, the interesting thing, well, I thought it was interesting. So I think it's quite common, at least from what I've seen, is um, what, what I refer to as the scarcity principle. So the claim that um, um, something is being limited or something is in short supply. You see, you see claims like this in other um, science skeptical mass media, and specifically claims that uh, ideas are being censored. So um, in the case of the anti-evolutionists, anti the claim is made quite repeatedly that anti-evolutionist mass media or anti-evolutionist uh, science is being censored by a, a pro-evolutionist pro scientist. However, within the anti, with the anti-vax media that I've looked at, this is more prevalent than what I've seen in anti-evolutionist mass media. So what I was anticipating finding in anti-vax mass media is that the arousal of fear, so fear appeals would be the most common persuasive cue. So we all, you know, we've all heard stories that vaccines cause autism, or we've heard stories that vaccines can lead to other negative side effects. So I assume that that would be the the crux of anti-vax mass media, at least here in Australia. Instead, what I found was that claims that uh, uh, anti-vax media or anti-vax um, science was being censored, that stories about vaccine injury were being censored, that there was a conspiracy from big pharma government and doctors to push ineffectual vaccines on us. Um, those conspiratorial distrust narratives were much more common than were arousal of fear. So, so the scarcity principle appeared in at least 72% of the media that I looked at here. So whereas arousal of fear was um, less than half of, was found in less than half of the articles that I looked at. And so what surprised me was that um, anti-vax media was really centered on sort of conspiracy, distrust, and the idea that something was being hidden from us and that we were being forced take ineffectual dangerous vaccines just, just uh, uh, because there was a conspiracy to make money and that there was some sort of nefarious um, activity going on. I, I was surprised by that. So we, we see that in other 
counter science media, but in, in the anti-vax media, it was really front and center. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting, isn't it? That, I mean, in both those cases that kind of central to, central to those kind of argumentative tactics is, is a kind of call on kind of the authority of science in both, even though in kind of in, in being anti-science, the, the kind of, you know, the, the, the kind of these tactic is to say, actually, no, we are the scientific ones and kind of to use that kind of cultural credibility that science has, I suppose, that cultural cachet of science as this kind of institution, actually, that we're the ones doing real science. And these these mainstream science scientists are, are you know, are in somehow kind of perverting or, you know, or or not really being scientific in their work. And I, found that, I mean, yeah, that, that, I suppose that's, is that kind of one of these things that's kind of come out of it, that kind of, you know, that, that, that science kind of underpins all of these things, even when people are being anti-science, if you like. Yeah, so every single, you know, all of the counter-science media that I've looked at, whether it's anti-evolutionist or anti-vaccinationist, are heavily reliant on source cues, the building the credibility of the source, saying that we are, like you said, we are fundamentally based on real science and we're based on the real truth. It changes a little bit. So with the anti-evolutionists, there, there are different kinds of source credibility. So with Institute for Creation Research, they're focused primarily on scientific credibility and secular markers of expertise that we have the most prestigious degrees. With Answers in Genesis, they're more biblical creations. So their, their credibility really comes from being religious authorities and, and, and claiming that they are the most reliant and devoted to the Bible and Christian values. With the anti-evolutionists, you do get a focus on scientific credibility. So they're saying, look, we have prestigious degrees and we have scientific experts who are vaccine skeptics. But at the same time with the, with the anti-vax movements, there's really a push to rely on your own expertise. So there's other markers of expertise that anti-vaccination um, media makers refer to. So, you know, the, expert, the expertise that you have as a parent in knowing your child that no doctor Will understand you have you have expertise about your own family that no doctors will understand. There's also the often there's claims that a parent who is an anti or counter vaccine or vaccine hesitant um, and does research online knows more than the average GP about vaccine dangers and vaccine safeties. And and then there's also just appeals to kind of more general expertise, saying, look, I have a university degree, um, you know, I'm not an idiot. Um, and and uh, I've done a lot of research online. So there's a little bit of, there's a, there's a bit of a, uh, you see a different range of appeals to credibility depending on which sort of counter science organization you're looking at or, or science skeptical organization you're looking at. But all of them in the end, like you said, all of them essentially say we are based on the real scientific facts. It, it also struck me, um, and this is like just listening to you and kind of like from my sort of own interests in childhood and education and family life that within the um the the movements that you've talked about whether it's like anti-vaccination or anti-evolution um I, I you know I, I get the sense that um the construction of childhood and what it means to be a child and actually placing um sort of like um a, 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 sort of the child is like a, a vulnerable per you know um 
sort of, you know, a vulnerable being that could be affected um, in, in relation to uh, like vaccinations or, you know, the rejection of, uh, you know, creationism and, and like actually how, um, yeah, I, I'm not probably phrasing this quite right, but actually sort of, um, I guess within, I mean, would you agree, like within the, the movements you're talking about, how these, uh, uh, how they use children and education and childhood, uh, the sanctity of childhood, the future of, of children, that's like kind of like a core area of their argument as well. Um, you know, in thinking of like their future well-being or, you know, things like that. Yeah, definitely. That's a good point, actually. So in, in you can actually see that, like you said, in both anti-evolutionist and anti-vaccination mass media is that they're both claim that you know their primary one of their primary um, missions is to keep let's say in terms of anti-evolutionists the next generation of christians safe and keep them and protect them from the guile of evil science right and so with anti-evolutionists one of the one of the more prominent uh, adverts that answers in genesis produced was uh, a, a video that uh, um featured, you know, a young sort of teenager walking towards a camera and he raises the gun at the camera and he, he cocks the, a pistol. And there's a narrator that comes on and he says, you know, if you don't matter to God, you don't matter to anyone. And the premise was that if we teach our youth, we teach young children evolutionary theory, they will come to think of themselves as just animals and if they think of themselves as just animals, what's to stop them from killing each other? And that advert was, a, was directly referencing the Columbine shootings and other school shootings. And the claim is, this is, this is the part of that values persuasion that, that accompanies anti-evolutionist mass media saying that, look, if, if we, what's at, what's at stake isn't just a, a, a science, just a kind of a conception of science. What's at stake is who we are and who your children think they are. And if you teach your children evolution, they will start killing each other because there's nothing to stop them from thinking that they're anything more than a great ape, an, an, another animal, and there's there's no moral center. And of course, with anti anti vaccinationism, that's the prime one of the primary messages. Look, all we want to do is keep children safe. And that's our primary concern. And vaccines we think are unsafe and we just wanna keep our family safe and we wanna have autonomy of choice over the decisions, medical decisions for our family. And so um, it essentially both of these sort of, at the heart of these sort of, of these counter science messages, which are totally different and have often very different cohorts is this appeal to the safety of our children and our families. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I'm kind of borrowing from um, Robert Orsi now um, when he let in his work on on on, on uh, childhood and, and comfort. But he he talks about children as being as signaling the vulnerability and contingency of particular religious world and religion itself. But you can also say that for science as well, like children, they signal the durability, they signal the the existence, um, the um, you know, like say the the contingency of a particular worldview and so for people who are like really invested on either either ends of those of those debates it's um children and they'll uh, like uh, standing there like offering access to what like the future is going to be and what's at stake 
for both those camps. Um, so for me, just like as like a sociologist of childhood, it's like it's just so interesting to like listen to what you're saying and think of it through through that lens as well. Um, but yeah, it's just yeah, future thought for me for, for sure. And just kind of what you were saying there, talking about that kind of values appeal, and going back to your kind of arguments about the um how you know how how they are particularly kind of persuasive and particularly kind of you know foundational in these kinds of rhetorical kind of strategies and how you know the I'm not sure if I'm putting your words in your mouth here but um, how potentially kind of science communication can learn a bit from that kind of rhetorical kind of strategy of values-based things because I think this is something that definitely um, chimes with the kind of um, well the kind of underpinning for a lot of the work that I've done in terms of what is it about science that as a society we want to value or we should value and I think that um, from the kind of the, the school of thought that I'm I kind of draw a lot of my kind of research with kind of this idea of elective modernism where the thing actually about science is that, that's useful for society is actually the values on which science is based and actually the the kind of values that underpin science as a kind of profession and as a kind of approach um, are actually the thing that sets science apart but are actually things that in a kind of democracy are good values to have anyway so things like open uh, openness integrity honesty you know all these kind of things that Merton talks about but you know rather than seen as kind of defining values as being things as science as a kind of profession aspires to actually you know some of the work that I've done has kind of argued that that's kind of what scientists and science communicators should be communicating about science in order to kind of to reflect its value to, to, to kind of the public and um, I mean I think from uh, I think there might be some some sort of convergence there and kind of some of the arguments you're making maybe not maybe I'm grasping a bit but it seems to me that's what I can kind of certainly take from kind of your argument here. Yeah, so in my work, I actually look at the persuasion cues that I'm analyzing as neutral tools. So persuasion is not inherently evil. So it's not inherently evil to use rhetorical devices to make an argument. Um, and I, I, you know, I would, an example of this might be when if a, um, a, go a local government is trying to tackle drink driving and they use very persuasive rhetoric in that drinking anti-drink driving campaign so images of you know our children getting run over these sorts of things very shocking persuasive um attributes it's not necessarily something that's evil persuasion is used in marketing campaigns for you know anything from the food that we eat to computers that we purchase and these and these those products are not inherently evil and the companies behind them aren't uh, you know necessarily evil uh, companies so persuasion can is in in my research is, is a neutral sort of category can be used for you know evil purposes or good purposes um, and with that in mind i think that the scientific community and let's say my colleagues at, in universities do have uh they sort of have a, a predilection to think that using persuasion to persuade people towards science is dirty right it's not it's it's almost going against this, the scientific ideal of being neutral. Um, and it's also something that seems to go against the academic, um, the academic uh, ethos of just, look, if we give people facts and we do it in a neutral, calm way, people will um, accept those facts and come aboard. The problem with that is uh, in looking at persuasion research and looking at uh, the persuasion attributes that you see in anti evolutionist or anti-vaccination media, is, it's really what I would say co cognitively naive. And I think that it's pro-science communicators need to think a little bit more about how to better persuade 
not an e in terms of evil, um, uh, in terms of using deceit or uh, um, trying to push evil to evil ends, but simply to try to promote science in better ways. And so, for instance, a lot of the pro-science communication that you look at doesn't appeal to source cues in the same way that anti-evolutionist mass media appeals to source cues. So anti-evolutionist mass media is continually referencing its the credibility of its speakers and its organizations nonstop. The science supports this, the science supports that. We have degrees from Harvard. We have degrees from other prestigious universities. You don't see that in pro, a lot of pro-science uh, mass media. And I think it might not hurt for science communicators to look beyond the knowledge deficit model of science communication because we know it doesn't work. We know that it's a false model. People do not, uh, so knowledge is not predictive of people's attitudes and behaviors around science. We know that increasing knowledge is often um, sometimes uh, counterproductive in terms of vaccines. So when you actually increase people's factual knowledge about vaccines, they can actually become less supportive of vaccines. Oddly enough, they can become polarized according to the cultural worldviews. So try appealing to people's cultural values. Try appealing to credibility. Try um, 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 appealing even to fear, perhaps, um, in ways in in ways that are you know thoughtful and respectful and positive, rather than just assuming that fact claims are going to get the job done, because there's very little evidence that that works. Thanks, Tom. So now I think we're just coming to the end of the podcast. Um, just wondered if you had um, three recommendations for reading around anything you've talked about today that you might think it would be interesting for our listeners to uh, go and read up on. In terms of recommendations, I would actually refer listeners to the work of Dan Cahan. So Dan Cahan is at uh, Yale, and his work was really eye-opening to me as a researcher, looking at ideas of cultural cognition and that whole premise that knowledge um, does not necessarily equate to um, positive attitudes towards science and positive actions towards science. So his work around climate change, denial, and uh, other areas of research, including vaccinations, I would turn people you know, towards um, his work there. Um, I'm thinking of some of his, there's a, an article called Geoengineering and Climate Change Polarization, which is really good. Um, I would, um, there's another quick little article um, called Who Fears the HPV, HPV Vaccine? Who Doesn't and Why? Um, and any of his work on cultural cognition, I would highly recommend. That's great. Um, thanks. I mean, I've had, when I was uh, doing my PhD at Cardiff, Dan Cahan came and gave a very interesting talk while we were there, which was um, really interesting about, yeah, about the uh, relationship between, I think, those kind of science attitudes and kind of political affiliation as well. But, you know, it's really interesting. Um, you know, again, adding to the kind of stuff that people in the network are interested in kind of complexifying this relationship between, you know, science, religion and other kind of social, cultural, institutional identities. So, yeah, thanks very much. For that. I'm sure the, the listeners uh, will be really interested. And as with other things, um, as with other podcasts, the kind of those materials that Tom suggested there will be um, linked to or provided. We'll provide some more information on the website so people can go look them up. Um, but yeah, I think I think as James said, we're kind of at the end there. So thanks, thanks, thanks so much for that, Tom. That's incredibly interesting stuff, really. Yeah. 
really yeah, great. Thanks so much, Tom. That was absolutely yeah, fascinating. Really, really interesting stuff. Thanks for having me. Great interview, that. Fantastic. What, what an interesting um, interesting career Tom's had there, interesting research he's doing. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I thought it was so interesting, like, just putting those parallels between his work in science and religion and the evolution mm. wars and then just bringing it really to present day in terms of anti-vaccine um, and just, you know, showing the commonalities, you know, b- between them is just fascinating. Mm. Yeah, I mean, Tom's not going to be out of a job anytime soon, is he? Uh, <laughs> no, he's, current yeah. <laughs> state of the he's world safe. <laughs> and working in vaccine hesitancy. But no, I think he says some really important things then when we're talking about science communication or public attitudes towards science. It's not just about the knowledge which people have or giving people knowledge. You know, people assimilate knowledge in different ways, might be motivated by their worldviews, mm. their values, their beliefs. Um, and, you know, uh, sometimes you may have to use some rhetorical or persuasive tactics, not necessarily in a nefarious way, because we do use rhetorical tactics or rhetorical methods every time we speak or try to convince someone of something. So perhaps less heavily relying on kind of graphs and stats. Um, It's a good way forward in certain areas. Yeah. Yeah. And and there are other reasons to, um, to, to, to value science, right? That apart from that, it just produces graphs and stats and numbers and things. There There are broader reasons why we might think that it's important that people, uh, value science in their society beyond that you know potentially that it provides us with knowledge you know yeah thanks guys thanks james thanks um rachel uh thanks very much tom for coming on and uh thanks very much uh to the listeners um for sticking with us throughout the podcast this is the last um podcast of the current first series i also have to say a massive thank you uh, to our producer vicky who's been with us the whole time done a great job keeping us all together and to paula as well who's facilitated all of this and has been the glue that's kept us all together um you haven't heard from them the listeners but you know they are really the the reason this is has mm. got as far as it has but yeah thanks very much um so hopefully uh we'll be back and you'll be able to hear more from us um in the coming months Uh, But for now, uh, we'll say goodbye from the Science and Belief in Society podcast. Thanks for listening.